0: Good morning everybody. My name is Kevin Perry. If you're new or a guest with us, Kevin Perry, worship arts pastor here. And uh, it is always a joy to serve in this way a little differently. And what I especially love is the joy of hearing your voices together. Um, That is truly fun for me. As the worship arts pastor... Preaching this morning, and uh, Chad, our community group pastor preaching last week, I want to go ahead and address the rumors and suspicions swirling about our other, our regular teaching pastors, Jeff and Monty, and go ahead and confirm that, in fact, they have run out of things to say in Isaiah. <laughs> they are completely, the tank is empty, we're going to check their warranty and send them off for servicing or something, and, <laughs> and they'll be back in a few weeks, but uh, yeah, it, it has been a while. I went back and looked, we've been in this book for 10 months, can you believe that? Ten months, and the, the name of the series is Holding Out Hope. You might think, well, we're holding out hope that you finish this before Jesus comes back, or <laughs> you may be holding out hope that Jesus comes back before we finish this. Either way, but Holding Out Hope, and we realize that over that amount of time, the way you break it up, there's been some tough segments in this book, right? It hasn't always felt very hopeful. In fact, you know, Chad, he, last week, he's like, man, that's a, that was a rough section. There's some, there's some heavy stuff in there, but but the overall arch of the book is one of hope. It's a message and trajectory of hope. And uh, there's the old joke about preachers, that preachers preach sermons with three points and a poem. Well, the prophetic sermon in our Bible, Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, is three points and a whole lot of poetry. And so to re- to just to review, this is kind of the overarching message of prophets, you know, like Isaiah. Number one, hey Israel, you've blown it. Israel, you've blown it, so you better repent. And they certainly did. We have certainly read and and meditated a lot on what their sin looked like in Isaiah and Deuteronomy 28. They haven't been faithful to the covenant that that God made with them. But number two, okay, so no repentance? Well, then get ready for judgment. Judgment is on the way, Israel. But then, point three, even so, even so, there is hope after judgment. Judgment. So this morning, as we kind of make the turn, chapters 59 and 60, into this final stretch of Isaiah, Isaiah really steers the ship from here to the end of the book into very, very hopeful waters. So uh, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 59. Flip, tap, swipe, turn, whatever you need to do in digital or paper to to Isaiah 59, and uh, we are going to get into the Bible this morning in a heavy way, in a good way. Now, as soon as I say that about hopeful, it being hopeful, it's not going to start that way. It's not going to sound like it starts that way. It's going to start like, oh man, here we go again. We're talking about Israel's sin. Same old song. But no, actually there's something really different in this chapter. Chapter 59, it takes on this beautiful kind of theme of repentance and confession. Israel repenting and confession. I call it in your notes the Isaiah road, it's this weird little, little pathway through repentance and confession. You've heard of the Romans Road, the selective passages in Romans that present a plan of salvation. Well, you've got this beautiful kind of selection, this beautiful path of repentance in Isaiah 59. Uh, read with me, uh, starting in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, some of your versions might say, your sinful acts have made a separation Between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, and give birth. So, point one there, there's sin is everybody's sin. All have fallen short and sinned. Uh, read on down there uh, verse 5 they hatch adder's eggs they weave the spider's web and he who eats their eggs dies and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched this is deadly their sin is deadly look on down at uh, verse 9 uh, verse 9 and 10 therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us we hope for light And behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those in full vigor, vigor, we are like dead men. The wages of sin is death. And reading on, uh, look at verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us, and our transgressions are with us. We know... Key point, we know, they're saying, we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Oh, what beautiful grace it is when we see our sin, right? That's the grace of God at work when our eyes are opened. Looking on, uh, verse 15. We talked a lot. There's a lot about fingers and hands and speech and eyes were blind men. But here, the Lord saw. The Lord saw what was going on and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. He wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. There was no one worthy. Echoes of God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. How is it going to get rectified? How is restoration going to take place? God's got to do it. And then finally, I look down at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you've got this beautiful. You know, even in the Old Testament, this beautiful path of confession and repentance. I mean, Isaiah seems to be writing that there's going to be a time when Israel, hey, you're going to get there to this place of repentance and confession. But the thing that went through my mind looking at that is like, well, wow, we're in chapter 59, and we know that there's something interesting about how Isaiah works. We know that he wrote the whole book, but they had this when he was writing, but for, for some reason it didn't take, they didn't listen. Then the exile comes, 70 years or so, decades go by, and then it does. Well, I'm like, well, what was going on back here when you wrote it? Why didn't no one listen? You got this weird thing, this fascinating thing, and it's amazing. No other book does this like Isaiah. That it's speaking to people, not only people, uh, not only about the future, but to people in the future. Amazing, God's word. But it's because they didn't listen. Why didn't they? And as I'm thinking through this, I thought of my own self growing up, I'm a guitar player, as as most of you know. Growing up playing guitar in the 80s in, in rock bands and cover bands, and and one band that, that was just always in my playlist was the Eagles. My rock bands and cover bands, we played all the Eagles songs. Lion Eyes, Peaceful, Easy Feeling, Oh yes, the horror. We played Hotel California many times. That was our big closer. We crushed it. You should hear it. Um <laughs> We killed those songs. But out of all their songs, there was one song in particular I was like, I don't get this song. Why did the greatest band on earth play this? They've got this icky, sweet ballad in their repertoire and we never touched it. I never listened to it. We never played it. I was like, why did the greatest band on earth write this ridiculously stupid ballad? It didn't make sense to me. Until in my teenage years, I got my first real taste of heartbreak. And uh, my teenage girlfriend at the time, broke with, no, she didn't break up with me. She dumped me for another guy. The gall of her. Dumped me for another guy. And I, I this one particular evening, I'm coming home in my 80s white Camara with my mustache raging and frosted mullet flying in the breeze. And, and, uh, and uh, I've got the windows down and you guys can hit play on this song. This song comes on my radio. oh turn it up this is good but at the time i'm thinking what is this garbage doing on my radio and nobody got time for that and this first line hits me and i'm like huh i'm alone at the end of the evening maybe i've judged this song a little too quickly and so i was like well let me i i could let it keep playing and then this next line just hits me square in the face I was thinking about a woman who might love me and I thought I knew her and I thought but she didn't know me and I'm dead. at that point it just turns into revival in my career. and I'm praying Lord I've always been a dreamer and it's so it's so hard to change God and I'm 17 I work at a pizza place and it's so hard to settle down and, and if I'm lying I'm dying this song becomes my anthem for the next few weeks of my life it I mean it takes top spot in my mixtape no kidding <laughs> and I want you to know that the Lord put me on the highway and showed me the signs and the signs said Alicia <laughs> Alicia Perry. Yeah, now what does that have to do with anything what changed was me. That goofy song took on new life because of me and where I was. Second Kings, how about that? Eagles to Second Kings. <laughs> Explains the exile perfectly. Second Kings 17 says, "This occurred, the exile occurred, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. They would not listen. They were stubborn." And as the metaphor goes, the song was always the same, but suddenly Israel had ears to hear. And you know what? Isaiah knew this. You might remember this nine months ago, Isaiah, around that time, we're in Isaiah 8. Isaiah knew this. He basically says in Isaiah 8, you know what? We're going to have to seal up this testimony, give it to my disciples, because the people are not ready to hear it. They, as Chad talked about last week, they are a complacent arrogant bunch, and they just don't have ears to hear yet. Uh, Isaiah scholar John Oswalt described this before and after of Israel, before exile and after. He said this, before, a despairing sense of alienation from God was just not in their view. As a whole, the people of Judah, they didn't seem to be very conscious of their sin at all. Then he goes on to say, but after the exile, it, Isaiah seems to be emphasizing and addressing a people in despair, a people who believed their condition was hopeless. Judgment comes, exile comes, and there are different people with different ears. And to quote Miss Potts from Beauty and the Beast, there's something there that wasn't there before. And that something that was there is called despair. I speak in Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. I have three daughters, so <laughs> that's, that's my world. That's my world. But despair, man, despair gives us big ears, right? Despair makes the very words sound different sometimes. It has the peculiar ability to make us really good listeners. And there in your notes, uh, I define despair like this. Despair is what fills in the vacuum left behind when a temporary, quote, hope fails. When a false hope is ripped away and shown for what it is, despair is what fills the hole in our souls, And so Isaiah seems to be writing here, closing out this section in in, uh, chapter 59, saying, you know, Israel, at some point you're going to wake up. At some point you're going to wake up and you're going to see your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to see, man, we have put our hope in all the wrong places. And that's going to help bring you, bring us, Isaiah is saying, as a people to this beautiful place of repentance and confession. Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher and scholar, theologian, back in 1737, preached this sermon. called uh, The title of it was Hope and Comfort Follow Confession and Repentance. It's a long sermon. I read it, very wordy. But you know what his big idea was? This is what God loves to do. God loves to come behind repentance and confession, the penitent person who knows they've blown it and is broken and fill them with hope and comfort. And you know what? We could stop right there. Maybe that's enough application right there for us as a people. And if that's you this morning, oh, it's so true. I blow blow it all the time. You blow it all the time, but God is, that's what God does, come behind repentance and confession, wanting to fill With hope and comfort. So there's this break after chapter fifty-nine. This break in the text uh, after this beautiful pathway of this beautiful speech of repentance and confession, and then we're off into chapter sixty. This glorious picture of future hope. And hope, as we know, hope is powerful, right? Hope is powerful. There any notes? I, uh, I, man, I check myself. 10 times, make sure I got the symbol right, but hope is greater than circumstance. Hope is greater than circumstance. To say it another way, we know hope has great power over circumstance. So, say it another way, hope is powerful and influential and deeply effective on how we view and see and process and live and walk through and experience circumstances, right? But that isn't, that isn't just some super spiritual concept just just for believers. I mean, that's how humanity operates on Driven by hope. And to illustrate this, I had this weird illustration idea to illustrate this this morning. So I need two volunteers. Uh, Jay, let me borrow you. Come up here and stand on the platform because today's your lucky day, brother. So let's just imagine. In another world, that uh, we are as of today hiring Jay at Fellowship Bible Church. He has to take this job, and the job is this: You are now the sole custodian and janitor of Fellowship Bible Church, and you will clean toilets here every day for the next ten years. Yeah, I know you did. Let's drink on true. And and at the end of ten years, we are going to pay you the sum, fifteen hundred dollars. All right? Is that can we applaud Jay? Great job, Jay. All right. Mom's so proud. Look, at she's beaming. All right, I need another volunteer. Come on up here. Uh, now, John. Let's imagine another world where we hire John. John, we let your employer know that you're resigning. Um, and as of today, we are getting John as the sole custodian and janitor of Fellowship Bible Church. And for the next 10 years, we'll, we'll clean to every toilet in the building every day. 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, we will be giving you 15 million dollars. How about that? Is that pretty good? Let's applaud him. Yeah, you're not applauding. Why are you not applauding? Okay, so so let's just imagine we could just check in with these guys in about seven, eight, or nine years. What do we think John's saying? Well, John's John's probably like, we check into him, he's probably got an email list, text, he's got a blog, he's got a support list, he texts out, he's like sending out on Facebook, hey saints, pray for me today, I'm off my, on my way to work, I'm tired, but, but God is good, yeah. God is good, he's doing a work in me, and I, I'm feeling, you know, it's the path is hard, the road is hard, but I've got my eyes on the prize, so I will persevere, you know, it's not about the money, he's, I'm a new man, I'm not the same guy I was, optimism Off the charts. If we checked in with Jay in about seven or eight or nine years, we wonder what Jay would be saying. You people are nasty. And your children are nasty. I clean up behind them every day. You're nasty. And you don't respect this place. You don't respect me. In fact, you know what? I'm suing Fellowship Bible Church. I'm suing. I don't care if my dad's a pastor, I'm suing Fellowship Bible Church. (laughs) Because the day I walked in there on August 6th, 2017, that was one of the worst days of my life. August 6, 2017, John's like, that was one of the best days of my life. Oh, what a difference, right? Give me them a hand. You guys can sit down. Now, that's not saying that if we make enough bank, everything is going to be okay. That's not the point of the illustration. What it does say, what it, I'm trying to illustrate, is that the way we see our future frames our presence, our present. <laughs> That what we think about the future does have bearing on how we live and breathe right now and give context. It might be in a society that we're so blessed, we know that. Circumstances, not that we don't have hard circumstances, but overall our circumstances are pretty doggone good compared to the world. It may be that hope is one of the biggest underestimated, underestimated engines of our life. Hope is powerful. And God, you know, we are hope-driven, hope-fueled, hope-sustained people. God knows this. And if we have a true living and confident hope, there is tremendous application in our life. And that's the real flaw in this exercise. Because in 10 years, when John figures out we can't pay him 15 million dollars, or 10, yeah, 15 million dollars, that we can give him like a study Bible and a gift card to Nukes, he will be in despair (laughs) when that falls through. But a true, living, confident hope has massive application. There in your notes, I define hope like this. This is always a working definition for me. It it was different five years ago. It might be different in five years, but I'm always swimming around these concepts. So try this on. I define hope as a life-shaping, confident expectation. Life-shaping, confident expectation. I'm titled this message, True Country. Uh, chapter 10 of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, is titled Hope. Amazing book, amazing chapter. Definitely go read it. And uh, in, that, in that passage... uh, he's he's got this line, he says, I must keep alive in myself, it's there in your notes, I must keep alive in myself, my desire for my true country. Not letting it get snowed in by the desires and the chaos and confusion in this world, but always keeping my sights on what my true hope is. So this morning, as we dive into Isaiah 60 and this grand picture of hope, there's two ways we can go about it. Um, Because this isn't just the future of Israel, this is our future Isn't that, God's word is amazing, right? Because Isaiah 60 hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. So this is our future too. So we can dive into this one of two ways. It's written to Israel. So we could follow Israel. We could dive into all those details, like how they get from here to there, what happens with the land and all these promises that God made to them and how that sorts out. There's a lot of views on that of Christian brothers and sisters, how they take that, deal with that. That would be interesting. That would be helpful. I've we've done a lot of that. and It is fascinating to do and study. And I've got plenty of opinions on it. But... Much better this morning would be to take some time in Isaiah 60 and point out how even then, even here in Isaiah 60 in our Old Testament, there are foreshadowings and tastes and foretastes of our grand, broad hopes in Christ. The the core contents of Christian hope. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we dive into Isaiah 60. Call it kind of a a flyover of our true country. So look with me at uh, Isaiah 60. Starting in verse one, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Here in a the first point you're outline, the first point of uh, our hope is the hope of future glory. The hope of future glory. And this gets back to the original purpose for mankind in Genesis 2. God created humanity to image him, to cultivate the potential of this world and to rule and to reign over it as image bearers, reflecting his glory. Now sin tarnishes and distorts and perverts that, but the original purpose is still there. And you know what? God gets what he wants He restores that. So our future is being restored to this hope of reflecting his glory perfectly. There's coming a time when that will be. I love, uh, you know, in in movies often the bad guy is the most interesting character. The first Avengers movie, uh, Loki was such an interesting character if you saw that movie. And one of his most fast, the best lines in the movie he had, he said, I am burdened with glorious purpose. I don't know if you remember that line. I'm burdened with glorious purpose. Well, you know what? fellow christian we are blessed with glorious purpose it's absolutely true nothing prideful about the truth that is what god intended for mankind psalm uh, psalm 8 what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him yet you have made him a little lower than god and you crown him with glory and majesty you make him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet there's not many worship songs out there about Ruling, us ruling and reigning, but there should be, because that's our we have hope of future glory, reflecting the glory of God perfectly. Number two, in your notes, the core content of our hope is the hope of a coming kingdom. Let's skip around a little bit in sixty, starting at verse four. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you, their sons shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you the wealth of nations shall come to you and skip down to verse 10 foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you for in my wrath I struck you but in my favor I have had mercy on you your gates shall be open continually day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring you to you the wealth of nations and finally jump down to uh, verse 18 violence shall no more be heard in your land devastation or destruction within your borders Uh, You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Now, we are separated by a mere 2,700 years from the context and some of these metaphors and references and imagery. But, uh, but here the prophet is painting this picture of a kingdom perfectly operating. A society perfectly flourishing under a perfect rule and reign of a perfect king. Can you imagine that? Society operating optimally, flourishing with perfect values, perfect priorities, perfect peace. And you know, these are the central themes, right, in the New Testament that Jesus preaches in the gospel. How many times we hear him, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The kingdom was a huge Part of what he preached, that this kingdom, with all its values and priorities, this is not escapism for us as Christians. We don't look at this and say, oh, can't wait to get there. When are we out of here? But no, the, the idea being that this kingdom that is coming, it breaks into the here and now. The goal is not to transcend this world. As kingdom people, but to transform it as kingdom people, not by human effort, not by economic reform, not by scientific discovery and military might, that God's grace might be in that to help, but really it's the most radical force for good is a kingdom not of this world breaking into this world through a kingdom-minded people. Radical application now, the future hope of a coming kingdom. Future hope of a coming kingdom. Number three, The content of our Christian hope is the hope of eternal life. Look down at verse 19. And I thought this was so interesting to kind of smell this here in in this chapter. Skip around a little bit. Verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Not for the brightness shall the moon give you light. And the next verse same idea the sun shall more no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself and then the next verse 21 it ends uh, uh you, your people shall possess the land forever the hope of eternal life even here in, uh, in Isaiah he's, he's painting this picture that at some point there's this permanence this is eternality that everything gets set right and it sticks forever you know, when he talks about the sun and the moon going away, you know, back in Genesis, God made the sun and the moon to, to divide the darkness and the light. It's, that's how we define day and night and how Israel defined its calendar and appointed those times. And now when it's, yeah, I just wonder how they took that. Like, wow, when the sun and the moon is gone, time changes and we're back where we belong forever. There's a sense of eternality. Now we know this side of the cross, John says we have eternal life We have eternal life. And yet, the Bible also says that eternal life is something we hope for. uh, Paul continually says that. refers to the hope of our eternal life. Uh, In his letter to Titus, Paul says this. He greets him like this. Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's chosen ones and the knowledge of the truth that is in keeping with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the ages began. That's some greeting, huh? I usually start my emails with, yo, what's up? So, but what a comfort this one is. The hope of eternal life. Alicia and I, when we were coming back from a vacation a few weeks ago, um, in our, the minivan, we have a, a one-year-old and a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. And a, uh, We play a lot of DVDs and uh, we've got this thing. We actually play worship music for all our kids to help get them to sleep. It's going to be terrible one day when they're in their church and they just conk out in the middle of how great is our God. But that's what we do. And so we're trying to get our little one to sleep. And so we put on the the praise baby DVD. And uh, so this and I've never kind of caught this line this way before. But I heard this one line that comes out of the radio. The line went something like this. It's through dying that we're born into eternal life. And it just caught me on. I was like, Alicia, I don't like that lyric. Now, I'm a worship pastor, and, and, you know, we sort through songs and hymns, old hymns, modern songs. Sometimes writing, you know, writers are not perfect. Sometimes they don't say things as precisely as they ought. Sometimes they're a little sloppy at best. Sometimes you you sing something, you're like, well, we know how we sing this. It's not said well, but we know the heart which, which we can sing it. But I just heard that, line. I was like, no. I mean, at best, that line's horrible. At best, it's sloppy. At the worst, that's horrific. Can you imagine getting all the kids together and children's been, hey, kids, you know how you get eternal life? Die. Bring out the juice and goldfish. (laughs) No. No, the wages of sin is death. Death is not a beautiful transition. The wages of sin is death. Death is the payoff of rebellion against God. And I just... You know what, I don't know about you, but when I've been with even believers, and non-believers, I just had a friend last year pass away. Godly woman, it was horrible, agonizing, disgusting. You're just sitting there the whole time and thinking, this is not how it should be. This is not how it should be horrific. There's no beautiful transition here. This is not some divine gateway. It's death. It's horrible. It's what spitting in the face of God has gotten in humanity. What is beautiful is resurrection. That's where our hope comes from. Resurrection. That is something I can sink my teeth in. I love how the Apostles' Creed ends that way. It says, resurrection of the body to everlasting life. Amen. The hope of eternal life is a big, big hopeful Hope for people here in a country of death, as it were. The hope of eternal life. Looking on. Look with me, uh, verse 21, chapter 60. And this is stated as plainly as plain can get. I love it when it's easy for a rookie preacher like me. Your people shall be righteous. Your people will all be righteous. The hope of ultimate righteousness. Righteousness the hope of ultimate righteousness. I just wonder how this landed with them. I wonder how for a people that had blown it, and had been dispersed and their families had been homeless for decades and they knew they blew it and they come to repentance. I wonder how this sounded eventually to them. One day you will be c- completely righteousness. And we know what that means for us. Yes, we have peace with Christ. Yes, we do, but we know in one sense the battle really takes, goes to another level when we come to Christ because then we're aware of our own flesh. We're aware that I'm aware that, man, the biggest problem to me is usually me and my flesh. That is the selfish, self-reliant part of me, prideful part of me. But, and the struggle is indeed real as a Christ follower and still in sin or as a sinner in a sinful world, still, still sinning, still in the flesh. But one day it won't be. One day it's done. As, uh, as Paul said in Galatians to the Galatian church, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We just sang it a moment ago. Faultless, faultless to stand before the throne. Faultless to stand before the throne. And one of the side notes of of no more sin is no more sorrow. I I was thinking about this. I was like, you know what? I don't think there's a single sorrowful tear that we shed on this earth that at its root cause is not sin. I can't think of any. I can't think of any. Not a single tear we shed in sorrow that is not somehow grounded in its cause in sin. And one day it shall be no more the hope of ultimate righteousness. Which leads us to the final point of the content of Christian hope. Last but certainly not least, I'm going to start reading at verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor your brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The sun, your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. One version said, I am the Lord and I'm going to do it. The hope of the light, capital L, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, all these other uh, facets of our hope, They are in orbit around Jesus. He is hope incarnate. And when we despair, we fix our hope back on him. When we lose heart, we look to him. When our desires and our longings in this world begin being snowed under by this world, we refocus our desire and longings on him. Our true country, as Lewis said, is our true country because that's where he is. He makes it our true country. It's where we dwell with him forever forever. And I like how Lewis goes on to say that you know a man who marries a rich woman to get rich was never after marriage because marriage is about marriage is about love, not money. And we, in the same way, we long for heaven like a lover longs for marriage, not for all the benefits it contains, but for who it contains. Jesus, the light of the world. And you know what? This, this language in here about the sun and the moon, not having any need for that anymore, John picks this up perfectly at the end of the book, Revelation 21, when he's painting a picture of the, the restoration of all things, as Peter calls it. He, John picks up this language perfectly and says, there's no need for the sun and the moon Because why? Because Because he says, the light is the glory of God given to us, the light which is our lamp. And you remember how he, if you've read this before, you remember how he, what he refers to the lamp as? How, what he calls the lamp? This is so amazing to me. He doesn't call him like a divine warrior. Nope. Does John call him like a lion? Nope. Does John call him like the perfect king? Nope. How he refers to him is the lamb. The light is the lamb which blows my mind. Even then at the restoration of all things, it's still screaming the gospel that the whole reason we're there is the Lamb of God who took who took away the sins of the world. He's why we're there, fulfilling our glorious purpose in a kingdom that never ends, forever, ultimately righteous, sin and sorrow no more, dwelling with the light of the world. He's the reason, the Lamb of God. And when we get there, when we get there, oh, won't we know full well? Oh, won't we in full knowledge know the truth that we sang so many times? Our hope is built on nothing less than who? Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is built, our hope was always built on nothing less than Jesus. Your hope is built, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, hope incarnate.